Father, we do thank you for your great faithfulness. You have been so kind to us, so loving to us. You have shown us great grace, and in that great grace, you have given us mercy. Lord, we do not have to pay the penalty for our sins, not because we're not guilty, but because in your mercy, you have forgiven us, placing that guilt and punishment upon Jesus, your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that we would continue in that faith, continue in that repentance. We pray for those who have not yet done that, that they would turn to Christ, see that grace, and love you and worship you by having faith in Jesus, turning from their sin and following after Him. Lord, we need your grace to bless us this morning as we open your word and study it. We need the grace to teach us truth. May your Spirit speak to our hearts and enable us for obedience. And we pray that you would move in us in a great way this morning. Teach us your truth from the inside, and Lord, may it carry to the outside as we live our lives. Help us, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is our distinct privilege to come again to God's Word, and if you think about that, that is such a wonderful blessing and privilege, isn't it? Isn't that a great thought that the omnipotent, all-powerful God is indeed capable of communicating to His creation perfectly. He chose prophets, and then He chose apostles, and He gave tests for them so that we would, could be certain who those prophets and apostles were. He even gave them signs and wonders so that they would be fully validated and certified. They wrote the Word of God, and God providentially then preserved that Word through the ages. He preserved it so perfectly that you can look at a scrap of papyrus that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was on the earth and compare it to some inscription on a temple wall hundreds of years after Jesus and it say the exact same thing, letter by letter. God preserved the truth. God preserved His Word. Then you start to compare His Word to history, to reality, to archaeology, even comparing his word, its word to itself, you find no contradictions, no errors. And we see again the illustration of God's providence and perfecting His word or having the perfect word preserved throughout history, the divine word of God. So we have this magnificent blessing to come to this collection of books, the Bible, and reading it and believing with confidence that it is indeed what it claims to be, the inerrant word of God. What a wonderful blessing. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're studying chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. A sermon, really, that Jesus preached to His men, the apostles, just a day or so before He was arrested, tried, and crucified. He preached this sermon in response to what they had asked and some things that had been said at the end of 23 and the beginning of 24, namely, what would be happening with respect to the temple and Jerusalem, and what about His return to the earth? Jesus responded by giving them informations, information in turn about these things. He did not give them a clear playbook because mostly what He was focused on was this main thought that applies even to Christians today, and that is spiritual readiness. Over and over, he told them, be ready, be prepared, don't be alarmed, don't be startled, be ready. 
No one knows. No one can time these things. No one can predict exactly what would happen. Here are some broad truths. But what's important for you all to know is to be ready. Now, to accentuate his main point that he gave there, he then gave four word pictures or four parables about spiritual readiness. Four word pictures that would help them and subsequently us help us cope with our own hardship and difficulty in life, and that may lead us to the return of Christ, or perhaps it would lead us to death as it would the disciples. Spiritual readiness in four parables. Parable one, the good and the bad servant. Parable two, the wise and the foolish virgins. Parable three, the faithful stewards and the unfaithful steward. And parable four, the sheep and the goats. Today we are in par parable three, a parable of the faithful steward, stewards and the unfaithful steward, otherwise known as the parable of the talents. No, this is not talents like personal gifts or abilities. Talent was a weight like a pound or a kilogram. That's how they would measure a great deal of money. So let's read this parable together, Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, and we'll study this together. For it, speaking of the coming of Christ or the coming of His kingdom, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enjoy or enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you, did, you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into, outer, into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. Many of you ladies, we've been excited to see many of our ladies here have been involved in Women of the Word, or WOW, as we call it. Some people call it WOW, but it's WOW. 
And this semester, you're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't already, you'll soon learn that the first couple of chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes are called the vanities. Because in that part, Solomon demonstrated the uselessness or the vanity of living by various ideologies, various mindsets or philosophies of living. The first vain pursuit, the first false philosophy that Solomon mentions is what you might you call the obsession with science and discovery. That's not to say science is wrong. No, these things are all moral, but the pursuit of them as though they are integral to human righteousness or flourishing, believing that science brings meaning or true joy is indeed a vanity. That vain mentality, that philosophy is related to the false philosophy of humanism, which has this overly optimistic view of humans that we can sort of do everything, accomplish all, that we are inherently good. This is also connected to a later philosophy, a philosophy of modernism, which says science and, and discovery, what man can accomplish in science and discovery is really the answer to all of life's ills. We can only discover the cure to fill in the blank, find a way to get fresh water over here, over there. If we can only control or at least predict the weather. Modernism, moreover, holds that only science can be trusted to explain reality. The problem with all of this thinking is that humans, ultimately, no matter how much they think they're smart, they know very little. They don't remember. They don't know anything, Solomon says. Humans, even brilliant scientists, cannot be ultimately trusted in the end. They disagree with one another. They have different presuppositions that they hold, different biases that they hold when they come and interpret nature. And it leads them to have false ideas, false conclusions. I read an article. It was from Time magazine in the 1950s, and it was an article about all how the, all these brilliant scientists from all the leading institutions got together. They, these university scientists got together, all these research scientists. They were very rigorous and high-minded high -minded people. They got together, and they noticed that the earth was cooling. There was global cooling, so they were trying to figure out how to get a bunch of cinders, hot cinders, to melt the poles. These are the most brilliant scientists, and now it's sort of the opposite, isn't it? While science and discovery can be beneficial, in the end, we do not have faith in these things. Moving from there, Solomon talked more broadly about the vanity of thinking in any knowledge or any kind of understanding, book knowledge, as though that would bring true meaning and true joy. It won't, he said. Pursuing this book knowledge with the idea that bare knowledge brings you meaning and joy will only lead to vexation, he says. Now, Solomon, why not live a life then if those things don't bring joy? If that's not the meaning of life, why not just satisfy your carnal desires? Why not just fulfill all that your urges are? Live life with the joy of pleasure as your ultimate goal. goal. Sex, money, belongings, accomplishments, just pursue all that. Surely that'll be joyful. Now, let me ask, is the elite crowd, the people with the most money and the most accomplishments and the most fame, are they the happiest group of people on earth? No. At best, they're just like us. The case could be made that they're actually less happy. What about those who just live carnally and maybe don't make it to the top of the pile as an elite? They just live to fulfill their bodily desires. Does that lead to fulfillment? Does that lead to joy? 
I would never uh, stereotype uh, all homeless. I would encourage you to speak with homeless folks, get to know them, find out people who are less fortunate than you, where, where they are, what got them there. You'd probably learn a lot. You'd probably have some empathy if you got to talking with them. And I've talked to quite a few, dozens in fact, in the years that I've lived here in Hawaii. There's, there's plenty to choose from. You just go out to the beach and you can find folks who are less fortunate and speak with them and find out what their life story is. It's, it actually turns out to be a blessing. As I've done that, again, I don't want to stereotype, but as I've done that, I've discovered that many of them will have a similar story. And it goes something like this. I came out here to surf, to smoke pot, and to have sex. And now I live in this dirty tent and addicted to cheap meth. People who pursue their bodily desires oftentimes are the most miserable. This is the emptiness of hedonism. This is the emptiness of living to your carnal desires. Again, it can, you see this in the most wealthy people, and you can see this in, even in homeless people. These people find the thing that Solomon preaches there, vanity. This pursuit is vanity. What about pragmatism? What about hard work? Isn't that fulfilling, hard work? Solomon said for a while that may work, but after a while it's just simply toil under the sun. In the end, you find keeping that endless stressful schedule of working hours and hours and hours that it's just toil and there's no ultimate joy to it. That early sense of fulfillment is replaced by an early death. So it's all vanity. If it's all vanity, what is the alternative? Solomon, what is the thing that brings true joy? What is the thing that's not vanity? What is the truth that brings meaning? At the end, Solomon says, fear God and obey His commandments. Fear God, meaning a li living a Godward life, living a life that's dedicated to the worship of God. How do we do that? By obedience, knowing and obeying God's Word. Paul the Apostle said something similar in his letter to the Ephesians. His letter, he begins, the first half of the book is by articulating these twin magnificent interwoven truths, one that God in Christ is reconciling creation to Himself, namely a people to worship Him. And secondly, this same Christ is uniting a people from every race and tribe, Jews and Gentiles, together to pursue that, the worship of God because of Christ. And he gives us this application that, that speaks of how we live on earth and what we pursue and even speaks of our own philosophy of living. He says in Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 15, "...look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise." making the best use of the time. Some of your translations may say redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand God's Word. Do God's Word. Worship God. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord from your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is saying, in other words, to borrow John Piper's book title, don't waste your life. Redeem the time. Worship Christ. Unite with those who are worshiping Christ. Don't waste it on hedonism. Don't waste it on pragmatism. Don't waste it on humanism or modernism. These are all useless vanities. They're a waste of time. 
Instead, see all of life as a wonderful gift of God and take responsibility to steward your life for the glory of God. Well, this is not just Solomon's point or Paul's point. This is Jesus' point in the parable of the talents. See all of life, see all of it, good and bad, as a magnificent gift of God and be a faithful steward of that life who uses that life to magnify and glorify God and bring Him praise and unite with those who would do the same. I'm feeling that some of us needed to hear this today. You've been sucked away by other philosophies of living, and what you're finding is emptiness. What you're finding is vanity, just as Solomon found. Now, this is what Jesus teaches in the parable of the talents. Just a reminder for those of you who are new with us, or just a reminder for those of us who may have forgotten in between the Sundays, Jesus had preached about the future. He had preached about their immediate future, then the distant future, time of His return, and now He's applying it all. And He's giving us these principles of spiritual readiness in these four parables. How then should we live? We've looked at these first two parables. Number one, it is to pursue integrity. Integrity, we learn, is not being true to yourself. It is being true to what God has called you to be. God has made all humans to glorify Him, to be Yahweh worshipers. And He's called us specifically as Christians to be a bond slave, to be his servant, and we're to be true to that, to be a person of integrity, is to be true to that calling, living up to that standard as image bearer and as bond slave. That first parable at the end of 24 taught us about this wise servant who's true to his calling and the unwise servant who defies that and seeks to fill his own desires. So in light of Christ's return, in light of this life we will lead, most likely leading to death or at least to Christ's return. What should we be found doing? We should be found people, we should be found as a person who pursues integrity. Second, ensure authenticity. That's chapter 25, the first 13 verses. The parable of the ten virgins taught us that in the last day we don't want to be outed as wedding crashers, someone who, who's an inauthentic, faith, fake Christian who thinks they can just sort of get swept up in the excitement of all the people going to heaven. Assuming, presuming really, that based on your proximity to the things of Jesus or the church or the people of Jesus, that somehow you'll just you'll sort of get swept up in the excitement. Make sure you are authentic. Be ready do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself, prove whether or not you are in the faith. How do you know? Answer these questions. Do you believe the truth? Do you love the truth? Do you pursue the truth and practice it? Today, the third parable on spiritual readiness, the parable of the talents, teaches us to, number three, take responsibility. Take responsibility. Now, you've seen this. We've had the wise and foolish servants, the wise and foolish virgins, and now we have the wise and foolish stewards. The wise stewards take responsibility. The foolish steward shirks his responsibility. Now, we live in a day that shirks responsibility. Blame is what you do to advance. 
to promote. You blame others. You blame circumstances. You never take responsibility for your actions. You never take responsibility to grow, to mature, to advance, to do the best with what you have. No, you blame others and demand that society rewards you, gives you more, promotes you, coddles you. It used to be that institutions like companies and schools and sports teams were were the purest forms of meritocracies. Your advancement, your growth, your promotion were solely based on your effort and your character and the product of your hands. Today, instead of dealing thoughtfully and individually to past injustices, we now promote people based on race, based on perceived hardship, based on gender or ethnic quotas. Again, that's not to say we shouldn't thoughtfully deal with past injustices. We certainly should do that, and we should think through those things. And what we're seeing in our society today is people taking no responsibility and blaming things in the past, maybe not even their own past, demanding that they be hired or promoted or recognized. They take zero responsibility of their own actions. It used to be that if you had a child in class who could not focus, was antsy or rebellious or had poor study habits, it used to be that we started with an effort to help that child take responsibility, to reform his actions, to reform his attitude, to amend the way he behaves, to to import good study habits, and we would help him do that. And then only after that would we start to look at the, the other circumstances in his life, his family, his health. Today, instead of doing that, we start with blame. Who can we blame for this child's poor behavior? His parents, his friends, his circumstances, his own mind? Who can we blame? Again, that's not to say people have genuine, don't have genuine health issues that cause problems, but it is to demonstrate how our society is a society of blame. We start with blame. I was reading an article this week about different forms of government, the socialist and and communistic model of society holds that the moral rule is in the hands of the government. The government determines your money, determines your child's education, determines your property, determines what you do, determines your own ethical decisions like how many children you have or where you worship or even if you worship. Those systems require very little or even zero responsibility from their citizens. People just exist, and their government determines everything for them. The genius of the American Republic and many other countries is that it demands responsibility from the individual. Our system relies on individual character, and then we give people freedom, freedom in education, freedom in family size, freedom in religion, and so forth. So the massive upheaval in American society today, in one sense, is because so many people want the freedom that a capitalistic republic provides, but also want the handouts of communism or socialism. In other words, people don't want to take responsibility to develop moral, the moral and ethical backbone that is required in a free society. So our country is dismantling because people shirk all responsibility. They want to be free from any accountability, but at the same time, they want to receive all the handouts. They want everything given to them while they live a derelictious and depraved life. Well, as Christians, we know it's even deeper than this, why our country is falling apart. 
Ultimately, a person or a people or a region or even a country that does not love and worship God, the God of the Bible, will always eventually, no matter how good the governmental system, will always resort to depravity, sin, and blame. When mankind fell from God, our instant response was to blame. Man blamed woman. Woman blamed the snake. Ultimately, they all blamed God. They all pointed to God. That's ultimately what all blame points to. And so the unraveling our country is, in the end, due to the fact that most people have shirked their responsibility to follow God. All humans have been granted a general revelation, nature, creation, a conscience, but they shirk that responsibility. After probably a few thousand years or more of paganism in, our, in North America, the gospel finally came to the shores of North America. And soon after that, here to Hawaii. By the way, when I was away, I was privileged to preach at the second ever Baptist church in America. They are about to celebrate. In a few years, they'll celebrate their 400th anniversary. Isn't that crazy? The gospel has been in this country for 400 years, and yet most people refuse it. Most people reject it. Or most people take some themes from God and the Bible and recreate the gospel and truth and Christianity and church. Why? Because they refuse to take responsibility. And because more and more of our people in our country are shirking their responsibility to God, the country continues to unravel, continues to fall, fall apart. That's the ultimate reason, right? The ultimate reason is not senators and who's elected and what, who's sitting on the court or who's in the president's office. Ultimately, it's the people who are shirking responsibility to God. But in the middle of this chaos, there is good news, isn't there? The good news is that God has chosen for Himself a people, a people He summoned out of, his dark, out of darkness into His glorious light. These people whom God has chosen, He calls effectively with the message of the gospel. And these people respond first by accepting the blame, by taking responsibility for their own sin, confessing it. And then, trusting in Jesus, who never sinned, they have faith that He took their guilt, He took their blame by suffering on the cross, and now they can live as shining lights in a dark world. This is all to say, core to the Christian ethos, core to what we as Christians are, is taking responsibility is seizing the day. And that's what this parable is all about, taking responsibility. Well, what does this look like? I, as I studied this passage, I noted four things, four principles or four foundational pillars. If you adopt them, this is a way in which you can take responsibility, that you can be a good steward. And on that last day, God would say to you what He says to these faithful stewards here, well done, my good and faithful servant. What are these standards? First, all life is a gift from God. The first truth is all life is a gift, of, gift from God. As I studied this, I noticed, 
A number of commentators and preachers were sort of looking for what is the analogy of these talents, and some folks actually thought it, it's talking about actual talents, but the word here is not talents in the way in which we think of it. It's the word for the way they weighed money back then, they weighed precious metal. This is like talking about pounds or kilograms, and this would have been a lot of money, one talents, in fact, a pretty heavy thing, even if it were the cheapest of coins to make up that one weight, it would still have meant a quite a bit of money. And Jesus is not talking simply about money, as though this is just a parable about money. This is about anything that God would give us. I think because it's so much, because it's such a, an amazing amount to each one of these servants, each one of these stewards is that it really, the representation here is all of life. It is your money, but it's also your spouse, and it's also your children, and it's also your siblings, and it's also your job, and it's also the hard things of life. It's also the difficulties that come in your way. It's also the hardship in your life, the sickness, the pain, the death. Paul said, all things work out for good for those who are called. And Paul doesn't mean good in a temporal sense. He means good in terms of God's glory because he includes later on in those all things persecution, pain, torture, and death. So he must mean something bigger than just personal physical good. He must mean something that is much greater than that, meaning the glory of God. So even when it comes to the bad stuff, the hardship, the disease, the sin done against us and the sin that we ourselves commit and get caught into, the Bible is very clear. God is not the director, direct author of those things, but God uses those works of Satan and his demons to bring about his good and his glory and to sanctify you. God is sovereignly giving us even the bad stuff God gives us. Even if it's stuff that's authored initially by Satan, God takes those things and makes it better in our lives. It may be the hardship in your life is the tiny amount of money, the little bit of money that you barely make and suffer for, and it's not even enough to pay for your life. You're a steward of that gift God has given. Whether it's a little amount of money or whether it's a large amount of money, we are all Stewards, whether it's great health and a great body, whether it's disease or great health, you're a steward of that. How will you use that to glorify God and be sanctified? Whether it's a healthy, happy marriage or a marriage full of constant controversy, you start with this main principle, everything in life is a gift from God that I must be a steward of. God in His providence has given me this. How can I take responsibility? Now, we're not told the exact value of the money here. They were simply told to seize the opportunity to be good stewards so that they'd be found in the end working as a good steward of the money that the master had given them. So that's really the first idea, that all of life is a gift from God. Everything that we have, everything that's given to us, good and bad, is part of God's plan, God's sovereign plan. We are to steward these things for His glory. 
Another principle that I see in this passage is that God has gifted everyone differently. This is pretty easy to see, isn't it? Each steward is given a different amount. One given five, one given two, the last fellow given one. A talent of any coinage, even the smallest of coin, would have been an astronomical amount. One commentator I read noted that even if you calculate here the value of the common shekel, one talent of common shekels would amount to about 6,000 days of a common worker's effort. So 16 years, more than 16 years. So each of these gifts of stewardship were significant. It might be like saying to one he gave $5 million, to one he gave $2 million, and another he gave $1 million. The reason I mention this is there's possibly some meaning here. Even though $1 million is an amazing amount, this might have tempted that final servant to be a little jealous, to feel slighted. You can kind of hear it in his, in his language here. He's sort of short with the master. I buried it. Here, have what is yours. I can't think of any other reason why Jesus would have different amounts for all these people other than the fact that this lesson is, is right here at the surface, that we're all gifted differently. We all are given differently in different areas, good and bad. We all have different things. And one temptation in the face of these different gifts is to compare yourself to others, is to constantly play that, that game of keeping up with the Joneses, trying to, to, to compare your life and compare your life to theirs, and maybe making excuses. Maybe that's part of your, your plot, it, shifting the blame and saying, well, of course it's easy for them. Look at all the money they have. Look at the great marriage they have. Look at the great kids they have. Of course it's easy for them. But I poor, woe is me. Look at all my stuff. Look how terrible my life is. Now, this gets us right back to the blame game, doesn't it? Right back to shirking responsibility. I have a sense that almost every one of us have felt this from time to time. Maybe you've felt it in terms of your health. Maybe in terms of your physique. You look at someone, they eat whatever they want, hardly exercise. And yet God has gifted you with a body that's shaped like a pear on toothpicks. <laughs> and you think, why did God give me this? I can't even think about carbs and not gain weight. Can be deeper though, right? Can be things like marriage. You look at some great marriage, oh, they're so happy. And look at my rotten marriage. Married to this old battle axe that just hacks away at everything. Maybe you feel that way in terms of spiritual gifts. This was happening actually in the church at Corinth, right? There's some spiritual gifts that were more public, more dominant, more recognizable, obvious spiritual gifts. And there are other spiritual gifts that are rarely seen or displayed in the church. There was controversy in the church because people were were jealous of one another and frustrated that they couldn't have these prominent gifts. Paul wanted people to be content with the gifts God had given them. 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of acti activities, but it is the same God who empowers them and all, all everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We're all working in this 
together. You can think of other things that you might be tempted to compare. Money, who hasn't felt? Uh, Lord, you, you know what's a common saying here. It takes money to make money. I, I could be a real blessing to the kingdom, Lord, if you gave me another promotion or a raise. Maybe you felt it about friends or your net, what, what, network or maybe even a spouse. Lord, I, how can I worship you? I, I've been single for so long and I'm so lonely. How can I do this? The list goes on. Stuff, a better job, a promotion, more influence. Our sin nature, again, is wired to blame our circumstances, to blame others for our lack of responsibility. Ultimately, because God is sovereign, we are, again, blaming God. And we're exemplifying poor stewardship for what He's given us. So it all goes back to that same old temptation. Instead of seizing the day, instead of taking responsibility... Instead of seeing all your circumstances, your life, your body, your hardship, your gifts, your blessings, the hardships even, the difficulties, the sicknesses, and trying to bless God with what He's given you, you soak and complain and compare yourself to others. Remember this principle. God gives everyone different gifts. There may be difficulties, and someone you may think is so blessed and everything's right in their life, there may be difficulties in their life that you have no idea of. And you would never want. And maybe if you open up the book to one another, you'd find out, wow, I think my life's actually better. This person suffers. Your focus should not be on others. It should not be on comparing. It should be not on some sort of perceived slight. No, you see what God has given to you, and you marshal that for His glory and find deep satisfaction and contentment in that. All right, principle number three. In life, God will give us gifts according to our stewardship. As you grow, as you mature, as you steward things for God's glory, He continues to give to you according to your ability. Why? Well, you can be trusted. To both the good stewards, the master said, you've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Now, I don't think he's saying, here's an ulterior motive. You want more riches, be really good with money, and you'll get rich. That's not true, because God may bless you, but He may, may not bless you after you've been really good with money. He may not bless you with more wealth. He may bless you with poverty. That's happened to some people. They've gone from great wealth and blessing God and giving to His kingdom, and God has said, all right, now here's the challenge, poverty. So it shouldn't be a motivation to get more in terms of money or blessing. But God does give to you and continues to grant you more and more responsibility, more and more stewardship as you live up to His calling. It says initially, He gave each one according to their ability, the five, the two, the one. And what great thing is that, is that God knows exactly what we're able to handle by His grace and with His power. By His strength, I am, I am able to be a good steward with exactly what is on my plate right now. For some of you, it doesn't feel that way, right? I mean, you're, you're facing something that is daunting. You're facing something that is hard. And you don't think you can do it. Well, with God's power, with His strength, with the church, with what He provides you, you are able. God has given you simply what you are able to steward. 
God gives each one of us what we're able to. And then He rewards us with more stewardship as life goes on. He gives us more and more responsibility. All right, one last principle and we're done. Number four, after life, we will give an account for our stewardship. After life, we will give an account for our stewardship. Clearly, this is all pointing to the end. In the context of the whole sermon, Jesus is talking to them about their deaths initially. For the rest of us, either it's death or when Jesus returns, the master returns, asks for an accounting of their stewardship. And of course, as Jesus likes to do at the end of his parables, he likes to blend it into reality. First servant entered my rest. Second servant entered my, into my rest. Last guy essentially blames the master. What's the master say? Verse 26. And his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you should have invested my money. At the very least, you could have put this in the bank. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have, have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. Into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You understand now why I said central to the ethos of Christianity is taking responsibility. Here is a someone who demonstrates... He refused to take responsibility. He refused to be a good steward. And it simply revealed that he really was not a servant of the master to begin with. And so he's cast into outer darkness. The master says, you didn't even do the easiest thing. You could have, instead of burying it, you could have at least given it to the bank, let it collect some interest. I think this is a little bit of an encouraging aside. You know... Just start with a baby step in terms of stewardship. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're not prepared. At least start with something easy in terms of good stewardship. Is it your money? Is it some hardship? Is it your health? Is it your gifts, your time, your efforts? Don't think that you instantly have to be like Jim Elliott or Jim George or some amazing saint who does so much for the kingdom. Just start being a good steward, even if it is in a little way. Then pray for more faithfulness. Pray for growth. Pray for greater accountability. Pray for better stewardship. That's the encouraging side of this. The hard truth is that in the end, you stand before God to give an account whether or not you are a steward So with this parable, the question really dangling for us is, are you a faithful steward or are you going to be outed at the, in the end as no steward at all? Are you someone who takes responsibility beginning with answering the gospel call, answering the message of salvation, the truth of Christ and Him crucified, owning up to your sin, acknowledging your sin before God, confessing it? And turning to Christ, believing that He paid for your sin and provides you righteousness. It continues with a life of faith and continued repentance. In all of life, God gives us many things, good and bad. Let's take responsibility and steward these things 
to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Well, why don't we pray for this? Pray for the grace to do that, and we'll have our time of the Lord's table here in a moment. Let's do this till the end of our lives or when He returns, whichever comes first. Father, we do pray that You would grant us stewardship, grant us the desire to steward our circumstances, to steward what You've given us. Lord, some in this very room are facing very dark, very hard circumstances, and it's uh, perhaps overwhelming. It is maybe look, they look at it and they just think there's no way out. There's no way that I can turn this into some way that would glorify God. And Lord, I pray that you just give them that desire, grant to them that desire to at least start, at least take one step to steward those things rightly and properly and according to your word. Help them take those initial moves to good stewardship. And help us all own up to our sin, Lord, especially those who don't know you. I pray that you'd grant them the desire to own their sin, to confess it, to uncover their sin before you so that Christ would cover it. Lord, all of us need your strength to be good stewards. All of us need your strength to take responsibility. So we commit to you obedience in this as we look at our time and our energy and our money and the blessings you give us and the hardships that come our way, Lord, may we all be good stewards until Christ returns or until we go to be with you. Help us in this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.